Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast, presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 59, The Benefits of Blood Tracking Dogs. Just to do a couple quick house cleaning items, you may have noticed this episode is being released on a Friday. That is going to be our new release date for all future episodes, so uh, make sure you're looking for them every Friday. And if you want to be notified, go ahead and subscribe, and it'll come right up there uh, through whatever streaming app you are using. Now, in today's episode, I'm going to be talking with Susan Edwards. Susan is a die-hard dog lover and trainer. She's a member of the United Blood Trackers, and that's basically an organization dedicated to helping hunters find their lost game, and they do it by the use of dogs. Susan has two accomplished beagles that she uses to help hunters in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia. Basically, anywhere within two hours from her house in southwestern Pennsylvania that allows leashed tracking dogs. She uses these dogs to find deer and bear after they've been shot, and the hunter, you know, every once in a while, we don't quite find what we're looking for. So we're going to be talking about how the dogs work, why it's an important tool for hunters, why she continues to do it and love it, and the do's and don'ts of tracking your game before you call in the dogs, which is a little bit different than how I've gone about finding my game when it's a little bit difficult. So let's just jump right into my conversation with Susan. I think it's a great one. Susan's an awesome person. I think you'll enjoy this episode as well. So today joined by Susan Edwards, blood tracking extraordinaire. Uh, Susan, how are you today? I'm I'm quite well, thank you. Good. So um, you have we've been we've talked quite a bit before I hit the record button uh, today and on the phone, uh, and I know that you have some a lot of experience in in a lot of the blood tracking world doing a bunch of different things so i really wanted to to sort of talk to you about your thoughts on it uh how to train you know how you go about training your dogs uh and a little bit also about um what you would like hunters to know if they're thinking they might have to call in a blood tracking dog because I have a feeling everything that I've ever been taught for tracking a deer um, would be for a difficult track might sort of throw off the dogs a little bit, make it a little bit, a little bit harder. Um, so why don't we just go ahead and start with the fact that it's only we just we just talked about that this has only been legal in Pennsylvania for two years. Correct. Um, Correct. And it was something that I know me personally I was very excited to hear about. Um, I hope you don't take offense to this, but I hope I never need to use your services. <laughs> but it's nice to know that there is that backup plan. Um, so I guess my first question would be, how does it how does it make you feel to see the Pennsylvania finally passed a law like this? Oh, I was so ecstatic. Um, but the irony of it all, 
I had just had back surgery two days before this passed. And so I'm wondering if I'm, if I'm now, after all this time, going to actually be able to track. And I am so quite happy to say yes. I had a good surgeon and everything's good. So yeah, absolutely ecstatic for Pennsylvania hunters that we don't needlessly leave these deer in the field. And I know that there's all kinds of ways that they get used by other things. But if you're, in my opinion, if you're going to be a hunter, you would like it to be used by you and not these other things. So yeah, thrilled. Yeah, like I said, it was definitely something I was was happy about. Um, How did you get into blood tracking? It's an odd story. I'll try to be as brief as I can, but I read an article in a newspaper when the gentleman over in Reading was trying to get this legalized in Pennsylvania, and I believe the article was written in 2004. So I read the article, I sent for the book from the author, and that started my fabulous adventure into tracking. I had a dog that I knew could find me no matter where I was on this farm. She ruined a squirrel hunt for my son when she was younger, and he wasn't happy about it because somebody had let her out, and we're sitting out there looking for squirrels, and here comes this chink, 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 and he's like, oh. (laughs) So I knew she could find me, and it just turns out that that particular dog was extraordinary in her skills of tracking once she knew what it was I wanted her to, to do. So that's how I got started in this adventure. So what what kind of dogs do you use for tracking? Personally, I like beagles. Does it have to be a beagle? Absolutely not. The requirements for a dog are, are just have a good good nose, which beagles certainly have, and a good prey drive. So you and across the tracking world from the United Blood Trackers, which I'm a member of, You'll find all kinds of different breeds. You'll find mixed breeds. You'll find purebreds. You'll find rescues. You'll find all kinds of dogs involved in these adventures. And it's it's a really good thing that it's not one specific kind of dog. Yeah, I mean, when I think about the idea of a good nose and tracking, you know, my mind goes to to movies and things, TV shows, you know, bloodhound, you know, most hounds. Uh, mm-hmm. Beagles make sense to me with mm-hmm. their ability to track rabbits. I mean, that's how I know uh, about beagles is, is rabbit hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, as I started looking into this, which is how I found you, um, I noticed the wide range uh, of dogs, um, you know, dash hounds, um, oh, yeah. border yeah. collies. I mean, it's, it you know, when you look nationwide, there's just, I mean, if, if you have a dog and like you said, it has a good nose and has some prey drive, I mean, dogs are remar- remarkable for what they are able to learn whenever we teach them properly. Um, so that it, it's amazing how many different types of dogs are able. It is. And I'm, I'm happy about that. Uh, although I have two tricolor beagles here that are my tracking partners right now. My first dog was not. I got her from a shelter. I don't even know what she was. She looked like a beagle. Okay. She acted like a beagle. She never howled a day in her life. She did not chase rabbits. 
However, she was a phenomenal tracker. So um, you need those two ingredients, the nose, the prey drive, and then there's one other ingredient that's really kind of important. And you need a dog that will partner with their handler. Because as odd as it may seem, and sometimes I'm on an adventure and I think all I did was get the dog here and that's all I had to do. And a lot of times that isn't the case either. The handler, it's a team effort. The dog has their certain strengths and the human handler has other strengths. And it is a team that you want to bring to this because you really do need that. Well, let's, I'd like to expand upon that a little bit because, I mean, what is it that the dog is specifically bringing other than its ability to smell the trail? And what's the handler bringing? Like, how are they working together to make sure that they're on the right track, that they're trying to find, you know, the right deer? Well, the dog, of course, their neurons is the most important thing. And being able to differentiate between uh, this smell and that smell. And the handler is the one that teaches us the dog. This is the smell. This is the scent that we want. And in training these particular types of dogs, blood is always involved at some point in the adventure. I, my dogs are only trained on blood. And it is not manufactured blood. It is blood that's been taken from deer that have been legally harvested on our farm or I have some hunters who I say, hey, I need some blood. They'll be very happy to provide because I track for them and no, it's a you know, give and take kind of situation. So this particular scent is what you are being rewarded for. And my dogs are very nicely rewarded for finding and for showing interest in wanting to track this because this isn't something you can force the dog to do. The dog's either going to do it or they're not. So the handler has to work with each dog that they may or may not have. Now I have two trackers. Their their personalities are so different, just like little kids. They have different likes, they have different dislikes, and so I have to learn that and keep them motivated. So the dog's job is to Oh, you want me to go find this for you? Well, okay, fine. So, and they need to just figure out all the skills that they need to find this. They may stick their nose to the ground. They may have to use the wind. They may have to problem solve when we come to a water crossing. And just, they need to figure it out. Especially when there is no visible blood. When I, as a handler, have no idea where the deer went to because there's no blood for us to see, I have to rely on the dog knowing the job, doing the job. The handler's part, I don't just blindly walk behind my dog. When I've trained these dogs, the lines have been very well marked at first, so I know whether the dog's on the line or not. If the dog goes off the line, what does the dog look like when they're off the line? So basically as a a handler, I have to learn to read my dog, read their body language. The dogs, these two dogs, when they chase rabbits together, they definitely know what the other one's doing and they communicate that way. 
Humans were not so good sometimes at reading body language. Dogs are excellent at it. So as a handler, I need to get, get with the program and read my dog's body language as to what they're trying to tell me about this track. And they tell you all kinds of different things, right? So that's, does that, did I answer the question? Yeah, about, no, that's, that's okay. a lot of what I was looking for. Yeah, it takes a while for the handler to know their dog. And that's why I personally recommend if you're getting into this, you got to train your own dog. So it's not like I could send the dog to a school, have them teach the dog to track something, and then I'm going to handle it because I haven't learned what the dog has been telling me throughout all of these training adventures. You understand? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what you're saying makes me think about when I'm hunting with my bird dogs. Uh, you know, I'm watching their body language and how they're moving. And, you know, there are times where, I mean, there are times that I blindly follow the dog because, you know, the dog, dog has a better nose than me. Um, but there are, are times based on their body language and that I can tell the dogs are sort of circling downwind a little bit. Um, they might move a little to my right and I realize the wind's blowing from the left. So instead of following them directly, I'm going to walk either on a straight line or maybe even bear left a little bit because mm -hmm. the bird's probably over there. Mm -hmm. um, they're just trying to get downwind to get a better scent mm -hmm. on, of that bird so that they can pinpoint exactly where it's at. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely I definitely see a lot of parallels to, to what you're doing and, mm -hmm. and to what I'm doing of trying to, to read that dog. And like you said, have a, a working relationship with that dog. Yeah, it's a, it's a partnership. Um, the difference between a bird dog and the dogs that we're using here, especially in Pennsylvania, the requirement is that the dog has to be leashed. So when the handler is physically attached to the dog, wow, you can, you can really have some influence. Just put it this way. You can have some influence over what the dog does or doesn't do. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's part skill, it's part art, and it all it, it, it takes a lot of patience and a lot of uh, mistakes, let me put it that way. <laughs> and, but the dog, this is where the dog's willingness to partner with the handler, willingness to put up with my um, stupid humanness, let's put it that way, <laughs> and still be motivated to go on the adventure, right? So whenever you are, are training these dogs, you, you said you're using real blood from illegally harvested deer. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's sort of like the starting point. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, are you then, once they seem like they're doing a pretty good job with that, are you then sort of graduating to someone you know has shot a deer, they know where it's at, um, and then bring the dog out just to track for practice? Like, or do you use an actual deer for training purposes or... That's definitely part of the process as when people contact me, well, what do I need? I said, well, first you need supplies. You need to get some blood. Although I know there are commercial products out there. I just personally don't use them because nothing's better than the real thing as far as I'm concerned. So if you have some blood, that's the starting point. Liver drags are really the best way to start because you have a lot of scent. It's a big uh, chunk you can just tie it to something and drag it along the ground it leaves a lot of scent for the dogs 
to get them motivated. And I haven't met a dog yet that doesn't like liver. <laughs> not not yet, but um, because my young dog Ruby is interesting. You know, she goes for the high value treats and she doesn't want nonsense. <laughs> but and Ro- Roxy will eat anything. So the liver drags are start. You start with just a straight line, not too f- far. If you're working with a puppy, of course, you you want to make sure that it's easy. And then you, you just keep increasing the challenges as you go along. And it, it can only be limited by your own imagination, actually, as to what kind of challenge you're going to pose to this dog. But it has to be kind of a, you know, if the dog's like a, a kindergartner, like a puppy, you're not going to give it a challenge that you would give a dog like Roxy, who's 10 years old and been tracking since she was a puppy. She's like <clears throat> the wizard as far as I'm concerned. And can I fool the wizard? So you just do it. And there's actually a, a fabulous book that tells you everything about how to do this. What book is that? Tracking Dogs for Finding Wounded Deer. Who's that, who's that by? It's by John Genonay. Okay. Uh, the author, I do know the author. I have spent some time with him. He's a wonderful man, and I have actually three copies of this same book. And the difference between the first copy and the last copy, the thickness of the book. (laughs) Yeah. Because over the years, we've all been learning. We've all been contributing to the success of these types of dogs. So the book... um, yeah, anybody that asks me, I said, I always text them a, pe- a picture of the book. You know, you get the book, read this book. Basically, anything you want to know is in there as a guide. But then you have to figure out, how is this going to work with my particular dog? You know, what kind of gear am I going to use? What kind of um, challenges am I going to do? What kind of rewards am I going to use? And, and such. But, uh, you know, going back to definitely going out and tracking deer that have been hit in a legal hunting situation, absolutely. There was a rule. Roxy tracks everything. Ruby tracks everything. Anything and everything that was hit and harvested on this farm, the dogs were taken out later to track it. Now, that doesn't necessarily, the whole deer doesn't have to be there because we run into problems with spoilage and such. But the, you know, the, um, the field dressing pile is still there, and the dogs have no trouble tracking to that. Uh, one of my sons actually... They're good shots, darn it. <laughs> and they had a couple deer fall within sight of their stand. I said, well, drag it. You know, they were happy to do that for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, Mom, how far? 100 yards should do it, you know. And they say, oh, my, thank God. She doesn't want 500. <laughs> but this is the kind of thing, and especially with a younger dog, because in training lines, it's just a piece of a hide. It's not a whole deer. If you're working with a puppy, you know, the puppy coming upon a big deer like this, yeah, it can be intimidating, especially if it's a big buck. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, controlled situations when you're training, absolutely, sure. So, I mean, the training is obviously working up to doing tracking for other people, but then you also have other options as well um, with sort of, I, I guess, trials um, and competitions or um, a controlled atmosphere of tracking but is judged, correct? We, in the United Blood Trackers, 
organization, we do have evaluations. Okay. Evaluate. But okay. these evaluations are not competitive. Okay. So it's not like your basic field trials for beagles or mm -hmm. anything like that. We have first, second, and third places. It doesn't happen like that. We have uh, an opportunity for the team, the handler and the dog, to be evaluated by a judge with experience to see if they would pass a certain level of competency. And it just is that. That, that we tell you that you have passed a certain level of competency. So a lot of people will do this so that they can see if they can do it, you know, mm -hmm. and, and then under the stress of a test. And um, so that's, so it's, it's a little different than other types mm -hmm. of things. I know there's other types of tests, but that's the way my blood trackers handles it. There right now, I believe there's three, three levels okay. of the tests. And what what levels are your two dogs at? Ruby, she's the younger one. She's turned four. She has successfully passed a, a UBT one. Okay. And she did that when she was seven months old. Oh, okay. Roxy, as I had previously returned, referred to her as the wizard. She has passed the UBT two twice, a UBT once, once, UBT one once, and she has successfully passed the UBT three. Okay. And that was, I think, two or three years ago. So, yeah, she's quite accomplished as far as passing evaluations. But I have to say, being able to find, being able to figure it out on a real call is I don't know unless the evaluator has put out a really really real test for you um, you know it is it is just what it says you know we have passed these these certain level of competency so um, so when when you get called and you go out to find a deer and your dog is you and your dog are successful in, in finding that deer what what's that like for you i mean i'm i'm assuming the dog is happy right i mean i know that <laughs> when my dogs find whatever it is they, they decide they're looking for um they're excited what is it but what's it like for you for me as the handler there's nothing i like better than to say here it is and i'm confident in my dogs i'm very confident in my dogs both of them Ruby is proving to be uh, not the apprentice that she was. She is definitely turning into a master. But to say, you know, here it is. And on some of these tracks, I have to say, I am in awe of the dog. I, I don't know how you found this. So I mean, is, it a, is it a feeling of pride? Is it a feeling of excitement? Um... I'd say it's just a feeling of pure joy. Okay. Just absolutely joyful for my dog, for the hunter that we have found this, and it's not, it's going to be, you know, uh, tagged and not just laying here. So, yeah, just joy, just unbelievable joy. So, I guess we're on that same topic. Like, can you give me an example of a tough track or, or uh, a time when you were like, oh, th this, this one was satisfying and like what was the challenge like what's the challenge that you've seen your dogs 
get through that you're like, wow, that I can't believe <laughs> that they were able to do that. Okay, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, they both have made some pretty incredible finds, uh, very incredible finds. Um, the gut shots, uh, hits to the abdominal area, are very difficult for humans to track. There's, there's no doubt about it. So being able to find a deer under those circumstances uh, is, is unique. One of the challenges that really poses a, a problem for us, which backed away when we first started talking here about what hunters do that really make it tough for the dogs, is the hunters will start to search in front of the dogs. So last season, I had a call from a gentleman, which right now, without looking it up, I'm not sure where he was, but he was beside himself because he had shot this deer the night before, and he thought he had a good shot with archery equipment. I, I'm pretty sure it was a compound bow, but I'm not positive on that. But he could not find the arrow, and it was dark, and it was raining now. And so he and five of his buddies, I believe there was five, were out there looking around for this deer. So he calls me the next morning. They didn't find it. Okay, so all right. I took both the dogs on this adventure. It was I, They just go by turn. Whoever's turn it is, that's whose turn it is. I, I probably took both of them because there wasn't anybody here for Roxy to, to be home with. So Ruby gets out there. We go in to the hit site area, and I always like to start at the hit site. Well, we find the arrow. It's laying in the creek. There's not a speck of blood on it. All right, because it had rained, and it had rained a decent rain. All right, well, at least we know we have the arrow, and it's a pass-through. So that's important information that the handler needs to know. So long story short on this one, Ruby tracked this deer to a tram road. This has been an area that had been logged out, timbered out. And so we had those logging roads. And these logging roads were just dirt. They hadn't even started to grow back on with vegetation yet. But now since it had rained, it was mud. So she tracked this deer to that road. And all I could see on this road were boot prints. That's all that was visible. There was not a single deer hoof print on this road. She tracked the deer to there, and she was on her hind legs, up, nose up the hill. And then she came right back down on the road. Now, up the hill is very, very thick stuff. If you can think about a, a timbered out area that you've got all the, the branches, the stuff that's left over is just laying there, and now you've got some briar starting to grow up through that, it's nasty. Right, so, okay, fine. So she's back and forth on this road. Then she starts to work up the road, and now I know what she's doing. She's going uphill to try to get the wind. She Here's the thing. She already knows that this deer is dead. I, I know she knows this deer is dead. I don't quite know it yet, but thinking back on it, she knew then this deer is dead, and I should be able to find it. She took herself back to the hit site twice back up to the road, back up trying to use the wind. And then finally, we're all the way up on the hillside. And she's trying to win this. And she starts back down. And now we have the landowner come and interrupted her terribly. You know, well, you met Ruby. She's very friendly. Mm -hmm. And she's uh, pet me, pet me, pet me, yes. oh, pet me. 
So I'm like, okay, this is a severe distraction. I don't know. I go take her back and get Roxy out. Now I'm bringing out the wizard who's very used to vipering Ruby back and Roxy's coming out. Roxy figures, ha ha ha, you didn't find it. I'm going to show you, right? I bring Roxy in. She's checking out the hit site. She goes up to that same stinking road. Sticks her nose up the hill, just like Ruby did. It was like carbon copy. And now she is like frantic trying to figure out where this deer went. Because now Roxy also knows this deer is dead. And why can't I find it? So she's back and forth on the road. Roxy takes herself back to the hit site three times. And when I say that, she took herself back there. Sometimes as a handler, I have to bring the dog back to mm -hmm. a starting point and get them to settle down and refocus. This particular track, both of these dogs came back to the hit site on their own. Third time at the hit site, I'm looking around now. What the heck is going on here? And I'm looking around, and Roxy's just milling around. She sticks her nose down. This is all the things that, uh, as a handler, you have to notice, and these are all the things that the dogs can do. She sticks her nose down and then just proceeds to walk around a little bit more. So I go over to where she stuck her nose down, and here is one single deer hair laying there on the ground. And I picked it up. I said, oh, I know what this is. That's my job as a handler. I know what this is. It was the hair from the side of the body that covers the heart area of a deer. And I recognized it right away. I have hair cards that I made up so that I know the different configurations of the hair on a deer. So, okay, this is a heart. This is a heart, and I'm like, what? Oh, my God. Roxy now goes back up to the road, goes back up the hillside where Ruby went, and she makes a really hard right and comes over, and she's standing there. I'm like, what is going on? So the guy that was with me was a friend of the hunter because he had to leave town, but that's another story. He, he did have his tag. He comes over behind me, and he's looking at a different angle that I'm looking at, and he said, there it is down there. It's now, it's down the hill. And Roxy's standing on the hillside, knowing she should be able to, because the wind is changing, mm -hmm. and she had to wind it to find it, because the cover on the hillside was too thick to let the scent of the deer travel down the hill and to be able to track it that way. Plus, the hunters had screwed up everything on that road and everywhere around, because there was nothing but boot prints. They had pretty much obliterated the scent of that deer everywhere except for where the deer was actually laying. So both dogs, knowing that the deer, this is dead, working their way that they can wind it and then take us to it. It was a beautiful 12-point buck. I would hate to have had that just not recovered. Mm -hmm. And that's where I was like, oh, Roxy, you are a genius. <laughs> And then later, thinking later on, oh, Ruby, I'm so sorry I didn't give you the opportunity mm -hmm. to make this recovery. Because she was heading in that direction when she was interrupted by a well-meaning landowner. So, yeah, walking around searching in the dark, in the rain, with hunting boots on, all over an area, looking for blood. And this particular hit, it was a hard shot. That deer didn't go more than 125 yards. And so there's not going to be a lot of blood. It's all inside. 
they just totally erased not only the blood scent, the injury scent, but the whole scent of the deer everywhere that they went. So that, yeah, I couldn't believe that we made that recovery. Yeah, the the ability of dogs is always amazing to me, what, what they're able to find and what they're able to figure out. Uh, like you said, you know, trying to position themselves to be downwind and knowing that it's somewhere around here, but I just can't quite get the scent to blow the right way to be able to pinpoint exactly where it is um, and then eventually figure it out. Like that, that always just blows me away um, what, what dogs are able to do compared to what we're able to do. Um, so that leads right into the, another thing that I really want to talk about is just as a hunter, what do you need me to do? What do you need other hunters to do? Because, and, and I'll preface that by saying this, this is my thought. If, if I have a marginal shot on a deer that I know is, is going to die, my thought process is give it time, right? Um, probably a couple hours, uh, then go back out. Uh, well, I take it back. First, mark the spot where the deer was shot. Uh, somehow then try to give it some time uh, go back out try to find blood follow that blood as long as I can uh, but oftentimes with marginal hits the blood runs out as far as what we're able to see um, maybe it rained my next step at that point would be to grid search to start grid searching for and and the, the look on your face uh, i can tell that's the last thing you want to hear but but that's what you know growing up in a state that didn't allow dogs to track that was what you were taught to do that was sort of the the best way to go about maybe you know if you can read some sign if maybe there's mud and you can sort of track or snow and you can track tracks like but really when it comes down to archery season for the most part it's grid search what <laughs> what what should hunters do what should they not do when they decide to call you i mean what do you need to know what should they when should they stop and say this is when i need to call a dog i shouldn't do any more to as you said obliterate, obliterate the deer scent oh yeah please don't obliterate the scent um, as it turns out i actually have a whole PowerPoint presentation for this kind of stuff. The, the very first thing as far as hunters need to realize now that the dogs are available in Pennsylvania, you need to be prepared. I have run into so many hunters, archery and firearms, who are simply just, they can't get it through their head that I might have to track a deer, period. So they're not prepared. They don't have basic gear, they don't have permission to trespass on private lands, which in Pennsylvania, we definitely need to have that. And we can get into all kinds of things as far as ethical and non-ethical, you know, but the landowner's rights here in Pennsylvania, and it's right in the hunting laws, you are supposed to have permission. And now on the three Sundays of that we're going to be able to hunt, because tracking is a hunting activity, not only do you have to, as a tracker, need to have a hunting license, you also need to have permission to travel across these lands. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of tracks get stopped. My dog will track it right to the property line. And believe me, I know where the property lines are. 
And I'll be like, do you have permission? No. Well, we can't go over there. And it's very, that's one of the things, you know, as a hunter, you need to get that permission. Get it in advance of the season if you can. Because it's a very disappointing thing to have to take the dog off the track. We had two of those last year where it was very disappointing. Again, this deer is definitely dead. Liver shot on the one, gut shot on the other one. And they had tracked them to property lines. And Roxy doesn't like to give up. I physically had to pick up that dog. She weighs 30 pounds. Carry her at least 50 yards away. And every time I put her down before that, she wanted to go right back to tracking. She knew where it had gone and she knew it was dead. So it's very disappointing for the team that's tracking it, along with the hunter, that we can't go over there and get that deer. So permission is needed. Um, and yeah, we can get into an ethical discussion, but I have to follow the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I will not allow my dogs to be taken because I'm not following the law. So that's number one. When you go out there, and you... you, you I would love to work with you, actually, because um, there are so many people who don't mark anything. And when you're marking this stuff, it, it needs to really be marked with some kind of flagging tape. That's what I strongly recommend. I, I get buy biodegradable flagging tape in bulk, and I'm often giving it out to people who uh, really have no clue. So flag it. Flag it at eye level because markers that are on the ground, whether it's a scuff on the ground, oh, I've had everything, uh, toilet paper on the ground, little campfire built on the ground, little teepee that, you know, when somebody says, we got a teepee there, I'm expecting it looking like a teepee, all right? (laughs) Well, the sticks were like, I don't know, a foot long. You can easily walk by it. And the dogs don't stay uh, sometimes right on the trail, so I could easily walk by it. People that are helping you could easily walk by your marker. Stuff that's at eye level is easily seen, even if you're scanning in the dark. If you're in an open field, now, you know, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. But if you've already prepared little, um, well, I guess I put them away, uh, clothespins with flagging tied to it. I can easily clip that on the grass in the field, and it might fly around, but... You know, flag it. Please flag it. Uh, When you start to follow your deer, and I'll get back to starting times in just a second, flag at eye level, stay off to the side. Flag at eye level as you go along, stay off to the side. It's very important, and I don't tell anybody, don't don't track it at all. I I never say that to anybody when they call me. I ask them, what have you done so far? because I assume they've done something. Mm-hmm. When you stay off to the side, you're giving the dog the best opportunity to come out there and make a recovery. I just talked about, I saw nothing on that road besides boot prints. I mean, when you stay off to the side, it's, it's extremely important. How can I get this point across? Let me think. Um, okay, hopefully everybody's familiar with the pig pen from Peanuts. Mm-hmm. And the cloud that he walks around with, all right? So if you can think about each individual person has their own cloud that they're taking around. And let's say each individual person's cloud is a different color. So you have that. And then you have the deer 
who also has its own cloud. That's an, its individual color. And every other deer that goes down that track has its individual color. So you see where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. Scent, when it moves throughout the environment, is very much like smoke, clouds, those types of things. So when you stay off to the side, say you're seeing visible blood like, oh, I don't know, a foot over to my right. I'm going to stay on this side of that blood the entire time, not stepping on the blood. Because you can erase, you can mix the ground scent source of that cloud. For the, the animal, it's mostly the blood, any hair that's falling off. For deer, they also have interdigital glands in their feet. That's putting out a scent that the dog can recognize and so on and so forth. So when I keep my cloud away from their cloud, it helps the dogs to be able to figure it out on the ground. Now, of course, as all this stuff rises, it's going to get all mixed around. I actually have a really good picture in my presentation for people to under, totally understand this, that as it rises, this, the wind is generally going to mix it. But the dogs, if they have to, they want to go to the ground to find the source, the source. So by staying off to the side, I'm avoiding mixing it. I'm avoiding erasing it as much as I can. And marking things at eye level that I can tell from a distance that my dog is on what you already saw. I don't have to look for it on the ground. I'm, not, I'm paying attention to the dog. So those two items in themselves. And if you run out of visible sign, you stop. There's a clear difference between tracking and searching. Mm -hmm. okay? And I know, and this is the new protocol that hunters, and I'm so thankful that you're here you're wanting to know this, that hunters need to understand that if you jump the deer, clearly it's not dead. So you should back out. If you run out of visible sign, you know, humans, we got to track with our eyes. And by sign, I'm meaning blood evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I have yet to come upon a track where I can distinguish that hoof, especially on a deer trail when there's been 10 deer go through mm -hmm. here. Uh, if it's just one deer and I can tell that he's weighted you know, differently, then that's different But in the snow. But I'm talking about you know, on dry ground, forget it. So what blood evidence do I have? When those two things happen, you need to back out. How do you back out? Well, if you've been flagging this, you can use those flags. Turn right around. Come back out the way you went in. Because you don't know where the deer went from here. I have had a lot of people um, flag it with all kinds of different things. but And then they've, they're finished and they're going to back out, but they take a a direct route to the truck or to the property line or what have you. Well, you don't know where the deer went. You don't know if you're going to walk across. You understand what I'm saying? So come back out the way you went in, even if it's a long way. That's what gives the dogs the best opportunity to do this and to not waste time trying to flag down Bill and George and Rachel and who knows who's over there, you know, and, and it's because they will. You know, if, you, if the hunters don't stay off to the side and they take all this scent, they mix the clouds up, they mix up the ground source scent, 
the dongs are pretty darn good, I have to say, especially Roxy the wizard. They, yes, they can figure out. Well, that's that's Fred. That's that's whoever. That's I don't know who that was, and uh, whatever. And then they well, where's my deer? And then yeah, they might happen upon where the deer actually went. And Roxy's pretty good at it. But if this is the last track of the day, my dogs are exhausted mm -hmm. from trailing down false lines. If we don't have false lines, wow, this is a thing of beauty actually to watch these dogs <laughs> do this. So yeah, that's it. So um, flag at eye level, stay off to the side, back out the way you came, use your markers. If you don't like to leave markers up in the woods, take them down when you're done. So hearing you talk to this point about what hunters should do makes me personally feel good on my choices last year in archery season. The, the deer I shot, it, it was a good heart shot. I caught the top of the heart. Um, but the deer reacted in a way that I've never seen before where it ran. I mean, dead sprint um, mm -hmm. to the point where I couldn't see it anymore, which at that point was probably about 200 yards away. So I thought that was odd. So when I got down after about an hour, even though I knew it was a good shot, um, I still waited an hour to get down. And I started tracking visible blood. And um, I... I the only difference is my markings were toilet paper um, because that, in my mind, serves a dual purpose in my pack. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I get it. Um, I but it you. was at a, for the most part, eye level, uh, very visible. I'm not, you know, I've watched um, some of my friends mark with different the toilet paper or even flagging tape, but, you know, very small little pieces. Uh, no, I made them nice and big and easy. And that was just for my, so that as I'm tracking, if I, you know, I'm, I, this is the last point of visible blood that I see right where I'm at. I'm looking, I'm scanning for the next one before mm -hmm. I, I take another step. And I'm, you know, like you said, I try to stay off to the side, something I was taught at a very, very early age. So you can always find that, that trail. Good again. for you. Good um, for you. But then you can always, when you, like you said, when you make those sort of bigger flags, very visible flags, you can look back and see the general path that the deer is taking. Right. Uh, so I did all that. And after about 250 yards, I came up, on a bench uh onto the top of a bench and i knew it was an area that was a little bit thicker i just you know coming up like that i just wanted to see what was going on so i used my binoculars to sort of scan in front of me and i did see a buck it's sort of thicker but i could see a buck i didn't know if it was the one i shot i didn't know if it was a different one so i backed out the same way that that you said i went off to the side of the trail that i just took um, and then I walked the road all the way back to our cabin, waited another hour. Um, turned out it was a different buck um, the, that I had seen. Um, my deer was long, my buck was long past dead, um, already in rigor mortis. He was, there was no way he was still alive whenever I saw that buck. So it had to be a different buck. I just, you know, saw a flash, thought maybe I jumped it. I wasn't sure. So it makes me feel good to know that what I did had done up to that point was correct. Mm -hmm. Um when let's say that scenario goes a little bit different for me where I stopped and backed out because I wasn't sure if I jumped the buck or not. Let's say that was the last point of visible blood. It wasn't for me. I was a, I'm, there was blood right up to that buck, but let's say that was, and I decide, you know what, I'm going to call instead of trying to search, you know, not track, but search. Now I'm going to call 
a tracker. I'm going to call you to come bring your dogs and help me find this deer. What information do you want to know from me? Well, when a hunter calls me, I have a whole interview form and I will go over from start to finish. I want to know about the shot. I want to know where you would stand, you on the ground, what kind of weapon you're using. You know, basically, do you have permission to be where you're hunting? I want to know all of these things that how the deer reacted to this shot. Did you see it react? You know, do you have the arrow? Was it a pass? You know, was it a pass through? Have you collected the arrow? If you have the arrow, boy, I want to know everything on the arrow. Describe the arrow to me, the color of the blood, the consistency of the blood, any hairs that you have, uh, because I'm trying to get a picture of this event. Because there are many, many shots that are not fatal. And sometimes you can determine that over the phone from what the evidence is suggesting. And then, again, this is secondhand because I didn't see it myself. I'm relying on the hunters to be absolutely truthful, which they're not always, <laughs> and to tell me as they see it. And this is where sometimes we have a language barrier, where people describe things, and then I have to repeat it back. Well, you mean it's like this? when it's a language, a type of description that I'm not familiar with. So we want to get a true information. So in that particular scenario that you're talking about, I would have asked you, you know, what time was the shot taken? How high were you? How far was the shot? Was it a clear shot? Were there any chances of any deflections of any kind? You know, sometimes there is. And what was the deer's reaction? How far did it go? That you, how far did you track? What did you see when you were tracking? Is it marked? Those kinds of things. So I'm trying to get an idea in my head about this. So as a handler, you know, I have to know all about shot angles. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll definitely ask the position of the deer. How was the deer standing when it was shot? And of course, in my mind now, I know what I should know about shot angles high percentage shots, low percentage shots. And how far is the deer gone already? When we have evidence that is not of an abdominal hit, okay, the blood that you would have seen, I mean, what color was the blood you saw on that track? Do you remember? It, it was a bright red. <coughs> a bright red. Bright red. Mm -hmm. No other characteristics to it? You know, was it any consistency um, to the blood that you little, recall? A little, bit of, a little bit of bubbles. Okay. Um, other, other than that, I, I, I can't recall anything else. Um, I mean, I'm, as you're running through those questions, I'm trying to think. I mean, it was uh, the shot was at 7:20 in the morning. Um, I was about 23 feet up in a tree. The deer was just ever so slightly angled, quartering two, just ever so slightly, um, bright red blood. Um, a little bit of, of bubbles I'd say as far as drops of blood anywhere between the size of a dime to the size of a uh, 50 cent piece depending on exactly where it was okay now the bubbles mm -hmm. this is just something that I'm just starting to inquire more about okay um, just so that everybody knows uh, just because there's bubbles in the blood that doesn't necessarily mean that it is lung blood mm -hmm. You can have oxygenated blood, which is what that is, mm -hmm. come from any wound on that body. And when I say bubbles, I mean a couple bubbles. Okay. Um, when 
when I've shot deer in archery season in the past where it's a, without 100% a lung hit deer, typically it's a frothy blood. Um, and, and this was not that, but there was some bubbles okay. in it. Yeah, even, even that frothy type stuff that you have described, um, I've seen that on a hit to the ham. Really? It's odd. It, it, but this is the thing, and this is the beauty of the dogs. The dogs don't have knowledge like that. Mm-hmm. They could care less, really, to tell you the truth. Um, but when these bubbles um, are very, very small, and they show up closer to the hit than farther away from the hit, mm-hmm. in my experience, now there's no scientific studies to tell you this, but in my experience, that's more indicative of a possible lung hit okay then then it being like i don't know 60 yards away mm-hmm. that now i've got bubbles so um and whenever i'm looking at answering these questions the answers that are given to me i'm looking at this with the absolute open mind that i can possibly have in the fact that it could be this and so when hunters go down there to look at the hit site to see what evidence may or may not be there I would always tell everybody please look at this as an open mind that it could be this it doesn't have to be this it could be 6,000 other things Mm -hmm. I don't know yet so that we stay out of the problem with humans getting into the you know I'm locked in that I'm not open to where this deer may or may not have gone the dogs, like I said before, the dogs don't care about any of that stuff. They're going to follow their nose. Mm-hmm. And I did say earlier that the dogs know this deer is dead, or they suspect it's going to be dead. It should be dead from the chemicals that are being released mm. in the blood. The dogs know. That's that prey drive that mm-hmm. I talked about earlier, that prey. Oh, yeah. You know, they know. I'm going to get this one. Yeah. But they also know when we start to track these deer... There's a change that happens in those chemicals. And again, we don't have scientific studies to say this, but I can see, and when I can read my dog, I can definitely tell you, oh, I don't know about this one, you know. We're starting to see about this, especially when it's bright red blood, like you described there. A lot of muscle hits are bright red Mm -hmm. blood, so you can't really tell until you know. But the dogs know, and so there's a definite change in these dogs. And my two dogs are very different in their changes. So they're going to basically tell me we're not getting it. This is a survivor. This is a survivor. And now it's taking longer and longer for Roxy to tell me this is a survivor because she likes to track. <laughs> and as soon as I know it's a survivor, I take her off the track. We don't, we're, especially in Pennsylvania, we are not allowed to hunt deer with dogs. Mm-mm. We're not allowed to chase them down. We're not allowed to hunt them. When I know that this is a survivor, and I usually have the hunter come, you know, in agreement. I'm telling the hunters I'm seeing the track unfold and what the dog is trying to tell me as we go along. I'm checking yardages, what we've seen, what we're not seeing. That they usually come to an agreement that this is, you know, pretty much a non-fatal hit. So, um. Yeah, the dogs don't care about any of those things, but me as a handler, I need to know this, 
what do I suspect? What do I think might have happened? And then I let the dog, the dog tells me the answer. The, may I say this? The dog tells me the true mm-hmm. answer to what has happened here. So, as as you're talking about, you know, differences of blood and, and things like that, it it reminds me that. So I ended up finding this buck about thirty yards from where I stopped because it got to the top of the bench, it started to dip back down, and he was just right down there in, in a little depression that I wasn't able to see right from where I was at. Um, but from that point, basically the last 25 or 30 yards, the blood was much darker. There was a whole lot more of it. And it now triggers in my mind that when I took that shot, I did catch some of the muscle in the shoulder on the way in. With So that would probably be where the bright red blood came from in the beginning, in, in my mind. Well, blood evidence, and I'm glad you said something about this because it's what I want to see. I want to see what kind of blood evidence I have right at the hit site. Blood will darken over time. Okay. Blood darkens with time. It darkens with temperature. And so it it will change in that respect. So if I'm at the hit site, and especially if I have an arrow and a pass-through arrow, or if I have anything there um, that really darker red blood like cherry red mm-hmm. you know not bright red like like you cut your hand in the kitchen mm-hmm. that's bright red that's right. okay but I'm not talking about that cherry colored red and it might be a, a just a different consistency which I can't even tell you the consistency it's just different than again if you had cut your hand in the kitchen and you're dripping blood onto the table or the countertop or whatever everyone knows what that consistency is mm-hmm. Liver blood, which is what I'm trying to talk about here, this darker colored looking blood, it just doesn't have that kind of consistency. There's just, and, I, and, it, and it varies. There's just so many variables in hunting. <laughs> That's what makes the adventure the adventure. It's when you see something like that, coupled with the shot angle, the reaction of the deer, where you think you might have hit the deer. Uh, and again, I'm going to say, where you see the knock, lighted knock going is not necessarily where the broadhead hit that animal. It's where the knock is. I mean, I don't know how many times I've walked up to this target I've got outside thinking, I have a perfect shot. Well, that's where the knock is. That isn't where the, the, the point is at all. <laughs> I mean, I'm off by a little bit. And with archery equipment, you're off by a little bit. Mm-hmm. You can be off by a lot mm-hmm. inside the body. So, uh, yeah, when you first see it, when you've calmed down and gotten out of your stand or out of your blind or whatever, you know, you should sit in there and wait. Make sure that deer has really left the area. So many people bump the deer when they get out of the stand. When you shoot an animal in the heart like that and they bolt, studies have shown us that, you know, mathematically they figured it out. If that deer has an open field, which that, that seems like what you described. Recently, very recently timbered, so very okay. open woods. Okay, so when that deer has an open shot, even if it's been struck in a vital organ or major artery, the speed that that deer can bolt out of there, they can go over a mile. Wow. Just flat out. And some of these fields over in Ohio, when I used to track in Ohio, there's some pretty darn big mm-hmm. fields because it's flat. You know, you got big fields. They could go from corner to corner on that baby, and they can travel that far. There's so many factors in the deer. You know, how much adrenaline, how much, 
you know, um, all that kind of stuff that tells them how quickly they can go. Like, you know, did they have an injury to one of their legs or anything on their way to the heart or lungs or whatever? So, but mathematically, the speed that they can go, yeah, it's over a mile. But no, it doesn't happen when they have to weave and bob and all those things. But mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. And trying to track a deer when the drops are getting smaller and smaller and smaller over the course of an open field for a mile, yeah, you need a dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. need a dog. Yeah. Wow. Open fields are the toughest things for humans to find blood. It's not an easy thing for the dogs to track in there either when there's winds and such, but uh, they have tactics that they use, not something that I taught them, but they figured out how to find the target. And I, I just watch them and, and wait to see this develop and figuring out their all the tools they have in their toolbox, you know. So other than the joy that you get when your dog has a success, successful track, I mean, well, do you get any do you get anything else from this is or is it like do you get any financial benefit is this something that is paid for right um do you are you able to charge money for your services i mean how does that work in pennsylvania in pennsylvania you're not allowed to charge on state game lands okay that's not allowed i think unless you're a guide but i'm pretty sure that you're not allowed to charge on state game lands um I, and I cannot speak for any other handlers in the state. I do not charge people to come and help you look for your deer. I, I do accept free will offerings, and they are most definitely free will offerings. I, I do this, as I spoke about the joy, and the fact that I don't, I have, a, I have great dogs, and watching them work is, is just great incredible if you could ever see them really do this you would be blown away but um, I don't want that to go to waste so I don't want someone to think that they can't have well, I'm again it's talking about me they can't have me come and help them because they can't afford me when I'm talking to people on the phone and the first question they ask me is, how much do you charge? I'm like, well, don't, let's not worry about that. I'm going to see if we can even get the deer first. You know, let's not worry about that. Um, because I, I definitely know what it's like not to have money, right? And uh, my husband would be very happy if I at least broke even on most of these adventures, but most people are very kind to me, I have to say that, and, uh, but I don't want it to be, it's not a financial thing for me, okay, and the thing is, really, we don't find more than deer than we do find, because of the survivor situation, you know, we don't know until we know and there's so many deer that do survive. They're incredible animals. Mm-hmm. Absolutely incredible the things that they um, can survive. So, I mean, I like to do this. Yes, I'm, I'm spending my time, but I'm not going to go six miles on a deer. My dog has already told me that it's not dead, mm-hmm. you know. Right. Uh, so, I just think it's a good thing for us to, to give back. And I know that some, I don't know, I know some of my colleagues in this state, I don't know how they handle it. I know some of my colleagues in other states, 
there actually are states that you are not allowed to charge. You certainly can accept donations, um, but I like the free will offering term myself better. And they do it this way because we want to help people. I don't want you to think that this is just for the elite, just for the wealthy. That isn't the case as far as I'm concerned. And again, I can only speak for myself. I, I think that's that's very well said. The, the more people that I have talked to for various topics through this podcast, the more I see that people are choosing to do what they're doing, which is why I'm interviewing them. Uh, but they're choosing this for a love of what it is that they do. Uh, mm-hmm. And in this case, this is a love of working with your dogs and mm-hmm. allowing your dogs to do what they excel at and what they enjoy to do. So um, I, I always like like to hear that. Um, you know, I, I can I can go hunting for hours, pheasant hunting for hours with my dogs. Um, I don't like to miss birds. <laughs> <laughs> well, nobody does. But you know, if I do, um, as long as my dogs found birds, you know what? It was a good day. Um, and there's even been a, a couple afternoons here and there where I haven't found a bird. You know, the dogs, we, we just, we didn't find a bird. Um, but it was, it was still fun to see them running around and, and doing what they enjoyed to, you know, in, enjoy doing. So, um, that hearing you describe how you go about, you know, the, the process of, of helping, uh, hunters potentially find their mm-hmm. game, uh, mm-hmm. I, that warms my heart. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that there are people um, like you that are out there that are just looking to help other people in a, in a otherwise bad situation. Um, yeah. You know, and, yeah. Uh, you know, you saying that more often you don't find deer than you do find deer, which in my mind I wouldn't have thought about, but now it makes sense. If a hunter is calling you, it's because they're having trouble finding their deer, which means it was probably a pretty marginal, it was a marginal shot or, could be. or yeah. extenuating circumstances like rain or snow or something that, you know, makes it harder for the that rain. hunter to, to track. Yeah. These past, these past few years, you know, we've had a exceptional amount of rain mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it makes it difficult for humans to track these deer. But the thing about the, the rain, unless they've been searched on top of it by people, the rain really doesn't affect these dogs that much. A lot of people think that's the case, you know, because it affects humans, mm-hmm. it's going to affect the dog. Actually, it makes it better in many instances that the scent is taken to the ground and held there, and it is not able to move around in the wind and such. So mm-hmm. it makes it very easy for the dogs to track it. So, you know, it's just one of those things when a deer does survive then the dogs basically can tell me that and uh, there are have been cases where we didn't locate the deer and the deer was found uh, dead later that's only happened very few times I must say that number one the dogs are not infallible the handler definitely is not perfect I will admit to that I make a lot of handling mistakes, but the thing is this, um, unless that deer, and there have only been two cases like that so far, unless that deer has been found like the day or the next day, just because someone has located their animal 
or they think it's their deer. Now, let's be honest here. A lot of racks, eight point, eight point. You know, how do you know? I mean, I had a guy recover a deer in a, in a creek that was like 30 days after I was there. And I'm pretty sure that deer wasn't there when I was there, all right? It may not have been dead yet. This is the thing with the gut shots. And uh, you had asked me before about when should you start to track these animals, um, especially with gut shots. They, you need to give them time to die. When you go to the hit site and you, you're pretty sure even from the shot that you see, it going, oh, that's a little low, oh, that's a little back, you know. Um, it's case by case, but really, most of the time, they need eight hours minimum before you start to go after them. And I've had a couple, last year, we were tracking these deer. One was 24 plus, one was 30 hours after the shot. That deer was still alive. Jeez. And we jumped them. And, of course, in Pennsylvania, we are not allowed to hunt once we jump those deer and determine it's not the last hurrah, like that deer goes more than 10 yards, we have to call this track off. That's where, you know, when you're trying to do these shot placements, and I know the deer move, yeah, I, we can't control that. But intentionally trying to strike that area, I wouldn't say to do it because you're not assured that you're going to get that deer. Mm -hmm. It's probably going to be fatal, but that doesn't mean that you're going to get it because these, remember I told you they can travel a mile? Mm -hmm. And that's on a a hard shot. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine how far these deer can travel? Especially when you bump them. Mm -hmm. They can go long distances. And you know what? There's not a speck of exterior thing for you as a human to track them. So you need to allow them time. But we try to get it, start the track, in that 8 to 12 hour window, depending on, is it going to spoil if I do that? You know, we have had warmer temperatures as well. So you have to kind of make the best guess you can. And if the deer, if we can't find it because we're in there too soon, I'm pretty much going to know that we're in here too soon. And I would advise the hunter to come back in another day or whatever. But because I've had, I don't know who listens to your show, but yes, we've had a couple of deer have been recovered. Two weeks later, a month later, you know, they found a deer, which they believed to be their deer. But I'm pretty sure that deer wasn't dead on the ground when I was there hmm. with the dog. Because um, because of the area that we cover, you know, we, we don't find it on the track. We I mean, we search with the dogs. So, um, yeah, 8 to 12 hours if you've got an abdominal hit, depending on whether it's going to spoil or not. And you, everybody should know about spoilages, what speeds it up, what slows it down. To start, if you've got a suspected heart shot, lung hit, like the bright red blood, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, you know, an hour or two. Yeah, basically leaving enough time for you as a human to calm down. To make better decisions. <laughs> oh, you got it. Okay. To calm down. Do I have my gear? Do I have everything I need? You know, I, I, even when I have come a day later, I've got people who don't have water. They don't have a flashlight. They don't have, you know, um, it's, it's like, uh, but I'm patient and I'll wait. And part of my job is to also educate hunters. But so that 
leads me into a, a little bit of a funny story. Um, my brother-in-law is uh, about 15 years younger than me and my wife, 15, 16 years younger. So um, when I first started dating my wife, he was still pretty young, um, still in high school. Um, I got him sort of, he had hunted before, but I sort of sparked an interest in hunting again. And I did that by giving him my old bow whenever I bought a new one. Um, so he went with a family friend, archery hunting. Um, the family friend did what a mentor shouldn't do and said, go sit over here. And then I'm going to go sit in the house, um, and let him sit there by himself, which he was of legal age to do, but he wasn't experienced hunting, but that's a whole nother part of it. But, um, I was in a different part, uh, in a whole different County, uh, hunting, when uh, I started getting bow calls from him, uh, it turned out he had shot a doe, and this would have been his first deer. Uh, so I said, okay, all right, fine, you know, just uh, where are you at? Okay, I'll, I'll come, you know, I looked a little bit. Um, the guy who owned the property helped him look for a little bit, but then had to leave. I said, I'll, I'll be there, don't worry about it. So I get down, I go. Um, but he didn't have a knife. He didn't have a rope to drag it out. Uh, he didn't have a flashlight. He didn't, you know, because he didn't know because the guy that was supposed to be helping him didn't tell him that he, you know, made, didn't make sure he had all that uh, stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it's like, I was like, buddy, what, what are you doing? You know, like here, I'm glad I have all my stuff in the truck so that we can use it. Um, but yeah, not having enough gear. That was, that was a funny experience for me. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting. <laughs> well, when you start being a tracking dog handler, it's it's quite interesting. It's taken me all these years. I finally have my gear how I want it. I finally well, it's taken me a long time to. Uh, I can get that next year, you know. I can mm -hmm. and and to get the things that I want, and then I lose gear and I'm not happy. But one of the things that's very very important to have or to be able to use, no matter how you choose to do this is some way of figuring out where the heck you are. Mm -hmm. Because when we have apps on the phone, when I, I'm not a salesperson for any app, but there are many apps that you can get. But then again, that's on your phone. You don't always have service on that phone. You don't always have service. <laughs> and uh, I just had a gentleman here, it was here on the weekend, he asked me to put a line out for his dog to help him uh, progress as a handler, which I was very happy to do, by the way. And I noticed that he did not have a GPS. That's one of the very first pieces of equipment that I had to get because I could get lost in my own backyard easily, especially at night, easily. Every tree in the woods looks exactly like every other tree in the woods when you're in the woods. So he did not have a GPS. So I mentioned it to him. He said, yeah, I'm, I said, don't rely on hunters to know where they're at. Mm -hmm. When we finished our little excursion that we went on, and I have my GPS, so I don't even walk on the farm without it, he said to me, well, what's the quickest way back? I said, well, we'll just go this way, and we'll come be back. He himself had no idea, you know, because he's watching his dog. Mm -hmm. So a, I recommend a handheld GPS of your liking to assist on tracking adventures. And as I pointed out to him, as I reached in my pocket and pulled out the extra batteries, I said, I can change the batteries on the fly with this. I don't have to plug it in. 
I don't have to wait for it to charge up even if I'm carrying a battery pack or whatever they, I know those are available for phones and such I don't have to wait for this to charge up I simply throw in new batteries and I'm right back to where I know where I'm at and you know tracking yardages seeing where you've gone you can get them now with you know satellite imagery and all those kinds of bells and whistles don't ask me that I have that but um, and you can also get things that you can know where the boundary lines are so a GPS to help you especially if you're and I don't recommend this either but especially if you're going out at night to try to track your deer um, going out there without some kind of way of knowing where you've gone and how to get back yeah, I, I just think that's but you'd be surprised mm-hmm. how many handlers that I see but they're, they're new you know they're right. new but right. again yeah. <laughs> it's in the book <laughs> um, but you know you certainly don't want to uh, personal safety is definitely high on my list when I'm going out on these excursions and uh, I, I really don't recommend that hunters track in the dark because it's dangerous and it's difficult hmm. those two things and um, unless okay unless of course there's certain situations without a dog I will track in the dark with my dog heck yeah uh, the, I'm just going to follow the dog <laughs> and the dog definitely will alert me to mm-hmm. difficult and dangerous situations ahead of us but un- and if I have a heart suspected heart or lung shot that I've shot at last light that should be a quick kill yes definitely if there's a chance that it might spoil if I leave it overnight oh heck yes I'm out there tracking it at night with a good flashlight please don't use a uh, gas lantern on that and if there's a chance a high probability of it's going to spoil overnight yeah I got to get out there if I have an obvious and easy to follow blood trail heck yeah track it at night but if I don't have those conditions Certainly, if that deer will not spoil if I leave it till daylight, as a human, I definitely have the advantage here. When I, when you intentionally put yourself at a disadvantage as a human tracking in the dark, because the flashlights only go so far. Mm-hmm. I and, and definitely tracking a gut shot deer in the dark that you haven't allowed enough time for the thing to die you are asking for trouble we have those are the ones that are very dangerous and i don't like hunters to try to convince me to track earlier because i know i have had colleagues charged we've had tracking dogs gored with the bucks because you know this is a prey animal it's Mm -hmm. fight or flight and i can't flight anymore i'm gonna fight and they will charge it's not just bears some of these you know does are dangerous too Mm -hmm. you know they Mm -hmm. they can take you to the ground and stomp on you all right so in the dark humans are at a disadvantage and i've even had people out there tracking bears in the dark and i'm like what i try i try to be kind okay i try (laughs) to be kind but no please do not ask me to track a bear in the dark i simply will not do it I'll be happy to track a bear, you know, under bear tracking conditions, and it isn't in the dark. I'm sorry to say that. So you need to allow enough time. And if you have, a, like, a liver shot, 
you suspect a liver. We talked earlier about the the color and consistency mm-hmm. of blood being. Oh, this is different. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's not going to die from blood loss unless you've really hit a major blood vessel in the liver. You need to die, let it die from an infection as well. Maybe not quite the eight hours. You could maybe you know bring it down just a little bit, depending on the conditions, depending on what the evidence says. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think you might have a combo shot lung liver then heck yeah you can go in advance of that um the one thing i want you know to know uh, people should be looking up about what conditions influence spoilage because they certainly exist now as the the climate is different but here's the thing and i just had contact with a couple vets uh, from penn state about this issue because i want to make sure i was giving people the right information spoilage does not occur or start to occur until the animal has died. So those ones I'm talking about 24 hours, 30 hours after the shot, those two were perfectly fine. They had not died yet. It's that accumulation of the bacteria once the tissue has definitely died Mm -hmm. that we incur these spoilages. So uh, please don't think you have to rush out there under certain circumstances. Mm You're just asking for trouble sometimes when you do that. Well, this has been some great information. How can people find your colleagues? You know, a hunter decides, hey, you know, I need to call in a blood tracking dog. How can they find a handler, either yourself or someone else, if they're in a different state? Um, how can what would be the best way for them to to find a blood tracker? The best way would be to go to the unitedbloodtrackers.org website. And I believe it's on the top left. There's a find a tracker tab. And one of my colleagues actually from Pennsylvania set this up, that there's a map there. And you can search by zip code. And all of the member trackers who will track, their contact information is there. I strongly suggest that people do this in advance of the season so that you know kind of who's in your area, where you're going to be hunting. You might want to have, I had a gentleman who did this last year. He's already contacted me this year. He's still tracking, blah, blah, blah. Uh, So that you can have the conversation with the tracker as to, you asked about financial things, you know, and I said, I don't charge. There are people that charge. Mm -hmm. And you might want to know that going in in advance and know how far they go, how far they travel and stuff like that, what experience they might have. You know, it'd be nice to have a conversation with the tracker to see if it's going to be suitable for you or not. So the unitedbloodtrackers.org website has the find a tracker information there. Personally, I don't refer calls out to someone if they are not a member of the United Blood Trackers. I have found this organization to be outstanding in um, the people who have been tracking for a while. I can't speak to new people because I don't know them. You're sitting across the table looking at me. I know you know I'm not young, right? And I've been tracking for a while. And the people who have a lot of experience, they also have been tracking for a while. 
And so those are the people that I would refer calls out to. If I've judged somebody and I've seen their dog work, you know, I may refer a call to them knowing that they can do the job. And uh, the organization is just uh, very uh, unique in its way that it, it deals with stuff and the way we get along as you see me referring to them all as colleagues. They're not my competitors. We are all in this, most of us, I can't say all, most of us are in it for we want to find the deer. Okay? If you can take this call and I can't take this call, do it. Do it. You know, I, I don't have a problem with that. And most of my colleagues you know, that I know uh, we're, we're similar in that respect. Okay, so that's how you would find somebody. Awesome. Uh, Susan, thank you. This has been great. I really yeah, this think... this has been fun, huh? I, I really enjoyed this, and, and I really think the listeners are going to enjoy this. It's a lot of um, quality information that I feel like, because it's so new in Pennsylvania, a lot of us in this state don't really know enough about it Um and some of us need to change our ways a little bit with when we track deer, um, mm. you know, in tough situations. But um, I think this is all, I always like new information, so I really enjoyed this. Yeah, thank you so much, Jason, for the opportunity. So basically, do what you can do on your own. But the new protocol would be, you know, flag at eye level, stay off to the side, call a dog before you call your individual posse. Uh, because that initial track, the, the more you can keep it to one or two people staying off to the side, it's much easier to control those little scent clouds. Mm-hmm. So see if you can get a dog before you can get your posse. If you can't get a dog, by all means, get out there and grid search away. But having the dog come in after grid search has happened, you're reducing your chances of locating the deer by, you know, just mucking it up especially when we have a lot of uh new new tracking dogs in pennsylvania mm-hmm. you know we don't have a lot of experienced dogs right. in pennsylvania yet so you know help the dogs out don't make it tough for them that'll do it for today's episode If you want to find Susan, you need a little help this season, and you want to find Susan or any of her colleagues, head on over to unitedbloodtrackers.org, and you can find contact information based on your location and what state you need help in. Uh, These people truly do some amazing things. Uh, It's awesome to see the dogs work and see what the dogs are able to do. Uh, I, I hope I never have to use... Susan's dogs at any point in my hunting career. I hope I'm able to always make good, ethical, clean shots for good, quick kills. But as anyone who's hunted for a long time knows, uh, sometimes mistakes happen. Uh, Sometimes things are a little out of your control uh, with trying to recover game. So Uh, It's nice to know that we now have the ability to use dogs for something they love to do and that can help us. Remember, we're going to be releasing all our episodes on Fridays now, so if you don't want to miss one, go ahead and hit that subscribe button and you'll be 
made aware of every future episode that we post. If you want to know what we're up to, go ahead onto our website and sign up for our newsletter. We send that out monthly. And until next week, as always, get outside and stay wild. Mm-hmm.